0: Lord, we are thankful for the worship that we have enjoyed and partaken of, to come together as your people to worship your great name. Thank you for song and for prayer and for fellowship and for giving. The table has been set, Lord. Now we come to you to hear your word and we pray for grace, both in the speaking and the preaching and in the hearing and applying. Would your spirit open our eyes, give understanding, and help us by your grace to hear from you and to be changed. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning we are in the book of Ephesians chapter 1, and since we just read from there, you're likely there. If not, I invite you to turn there. Ephesians is not an unfamiliar book to our assembly. Pastor Rich taught through it intermittently over the last several years, and we certainly benefited from it as God's people. I don't want to unnecessarily repeat sermon texts, but uh, last month I took a doctoral class at seminary, and Ephesians was one of the books we spent time in and interacted with. And so this great epistle has been on my heart and in my mind and in my studies as of late, And as such, it makes sense uh, for me to preach from it. And I'll say what a tremendous passage we have the privilege to look at this morning. You're already in Ephesians 1. We've just read the first 14 verses. Let me direct our attention now to verses 15 through 23, and I'll continue reading. Paul says, For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Every every student present or way in the past, every student knows what it is like to hear the teacher or professor tell the class, know this for the test. Five simple words that will wake up even the sleepiest and most disinterested of students in a class lecture. Know this for the test. And I suppose that if teachers can get our attention by telling us that we need to know something, then how much more should we be alert when the God of the universe tells us in his word that he wants us to know something? All of Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable, 2 Timothy 3. We know that, but there are occasions in the New Testament when God, the divine author, specifically tells us through the human author that there is something that we need to know. And when that happens, it should get our attention. One of those occasions is in our passage this morning, Ephesians 1, 15 through 23. You'll notice In fact, in verse 18, Paul asks that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened that we may know. And then Paul goes on to tell us what God wants us to know. Of course, course, it's no longer a know this for the test scenario, but when God speaks, it's know this for life. And that's far, far more important to us. Some Passages of Scripture are more challenging than others to to catch the flow. It can be hard sometimes to trace the the author's argument through a text, particularly in the, the epistles. But I don't think that this is one of those passages, at least in terms of structure. Paul does two pretty straightforward things in these verses. He gives thanks to God for these believers, verses 15 and 16, and then he prays for them. Verses 17 through 23. I mean, that's it. He gives, he gives thanks for them and he prays for them. It's rare that just structures and outlines transform us, right? So the task before us this morning is to dive in and understand what each of those elements means. Why does Paul give thanks for the saints in Ephesus and what exactly is he praying for uh, for them and for us and Why? Before Paul tells his readers what he wants to know for them, he first gives thanks to God for them. We see this in verses 15, first part of 16. We see that Paul's thankful for two things, their faith in the Lord Jesus and their love toward all the saints. Faith in the Lord Jesus, their love toward all the saints. Uh, Here are two qualities worth giving thanks for. And two qualities, two characteristics that are vital for Christian living. As one writer has said, faith in Christ apart from love for the saints is dead or incomplete. On the other hand, love for the saints apart from faith in Christ reduces the church to just another social service provider. It's true indeed. We need both. I kind of think sometimes, I don't know if it's just me, maybe I'm a little quirky, but Sometimes think of what I'd want to have on my tombstone. Bear with me if that sounds morbid to you. But but wouldn't it be wonderful to have something like this on your tombstone? I mean, just imagine, you know, here lies John, no simpler man to commend, yet he trusted Christ and loved to the end. That was my attempt at poetry. Poetry. But I, I could die a happy man if that were genuinely said of me and inscribed on my tombstone. I think Paul is thankful for these believers for their faith and in their love because it really is a strong testimony to the fact that everything Paul says there in the first part of Ephesians 1 is, is realized in their lives. They're manifesting that. Paul begins in verse 15 with the words, for this reason, and that just points us backwards to the the whole first section of chapter 1. Verses 3 through 14, it's really one of the richest and most profound sections in all of Scripture as Paul explains the work of the triune God to design, accomplish, and guarantee our salvation. And these Ephesian believers experienced that. God did that work in them, To the praise of his glorious grace. And it brought Paul profound joy to know that they were united with Christ in faith. They were loving one another and experiencing every spiritual blessing in Christ. What a joy! What a joy for an apostle to know that. I think uh, maybe we as a church can take our cue from Paul here. We should be quick to see and to celebrate God's work of grace in the life of another. Be quick to thank God for the faith and love that a brother or sister shows because that's God's work in them. Paul models this for us, and I think it's a good thing. As we see, it makes Paul thankful. He praises God for that. He gives thanks to God for them. He doesn't cease giving thanks for them, Paul says. Of course, he did other things, but his hyperbole here makes a point. Paul is thrilled for their, uh, God's work of grace in their lives. But he doesn't just express thanks, as, as lovely and as important as that is. Paul prays for them. He intercedes for them and that's what we want to turn most of our attention towards. We've already said that Paul is praying that these saints would know something, that they would know. Verse 18, that you may know. But knowing or comprehending spiritual truth doesn't just happen. It doesn't just happen. It's not automatic. It requires the work of the Holy Spirit. He must open our eyes and so Paul begins his Prayer for them with this request, verse 17, end of 16. Remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Back, uh, Back in the 90s, I believe, there was this popular phenomenon called stereograms or auto-stereograms. You you may recall them. They were two-dimensional images, usually framed pictures, um, patterns of colors. And at a quick glance, it wouldn't look anything more than just colors on, on paper. But if you stood there and you stared at it long enough... All of a sudden, your eyes would adjust and refocus, and, and suddenly this three-dimensional picture would pop out at you, and a whole new scene would emerge. Are you, are you familiar with these? Okay. Haven't seen one in a while. So there it was, right? But, but you had to have eyes to see it, and pity the person who was there with a friend and could not see it when the friend could, right? Did you see that? No, look, what? I can't see it. In a similar way, verse 18, Paul knows that for us to really grasp what God wants us to know, to really see and comprehend spiritual reality, we need the Holy Spirit to open our eyes. We need the Spirit to make two-dimensional, three-dimensional, if you will. And so Paul prays for this. It it really is a fitting request. And I would stop here and say this is why among other reasons, that we pray frequently here as a gathered body that the Holy Spirit would be our teacher, that he would be our guide, that he would open our eyes to truth because these are not just throwaway words. We need the Spirit to help open our eyes. Think of the psalmist's words, Psalm 119, verse 18, Open my eyes, he prays, that I may behold wondrous things from your law. He needed it, and so do we. All right, Paul has prayed for this enlightenment by the Spirit. We've worked our way up to this point now. What is it that Paul specifically wants his readers and us to know? Verses 18 and 19. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? Three things that God, through Paul here, really wants us to know. What is the hope to which he has called you? What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of God's power to us who believe? These represent three spiritual realities that God wants us to know. And we need to know them so that we can lay hold of our spiritual identity and the resources we have in Christ and live accordingly. So we first need to see here the eyes of our hearts enlightened so that we may know the hope of his calling, verse 18. Now this isn't the first time Paul's mentioned something about God's calling or his choosing in our lives Back to verses 4 and 5 of chapter 1, we hear Paul speaking here that even as God chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. Verse 5, he predestined us. So salvation, we know, is from the Lord. And if you are a follower of Jesus Christ this morning, then according to God's word, even here as we just read You are ultimately in God's family because God set his saving love upon you and chose you to be his own. This is God's electing call to salvation. And tied to this is a rock-solid hope. A rock-solid hope that Paul wants his readers, he wants us to grasp and lay hold of. Notice he doesn't just want us to know the fact of God's calling, this calling unto salvation. He doesn't want us just to know that it happened. But he wants us to know the hope of God's calling. In other words, he wants us to be forward-looking because that's what hope entails. One writer aptly said that hope, defining hope, he said hope is faith standing on tiptoes. I like that. Faith standing on tiptoes expectantly. Another writer observed that an essential characteristic of Christianity is its tilt toward the future. In other words, we believe. That's faith. And as faith and trust and all that God's revealed, as as faith stands on its tiptoes and tilts forward with confident expectation, now we have hope. That's hope. And hope, while its future in its orientation, really does impact the present. That's what hope does. All you have to do is think of the child who knows that her birthday is right around the corner or that Disneyland is on the calendar. I mean, you want to talk about relentless hope, hope that impacts the present, like every minute of every day of the present, Now, that's a major tilt to the future, isn't it? But it impacts today, how that child lives, how that child thinks, what comes out of that child's mouth, tiptoes, peering ahead. It does make a difference. But what is our hope? What is our hope? Well, that's a big question with a big answer. Um, Our hope ultimately is in God himself, who he is, his character, that He's faithful, true, that we can trust Him. We can trust His promises. He will accomplish and will do what He said. So our hope is anchored in, in the person of God. Uh, but the New Testament talks about it in different ways. It can speak of the hope of salvation. First Thessalonians 5. It can speak of uh, righteousness. Galatians 5 or our hope being resurrection in an incorruptible body 1 Corinthians 15 it can speak of hope as eternal life in first uh, in, in 1 Timothy it also can speak of Christ himself as being our hope 1 Timothy 1:1 so so hope it's it's like a diamond it's it's multifaceted many sides but the common denominator is that hope looks forward it looks forward to the consummation of our redemption and all that this entails. So, so in other words, this present existence is not all that there is. And we know that, we know that. We are moving towards something and indeed God is moving us and all of the universe towards something. And this movement, this divine movement by God, is, it's not simply related to our own individual salvation. I, I think if you were to ask any Christian what is her, his or her hope, they might respond with something, I mean, they might use different words, but kind of something of, to the effect of, well, my hope is, is going to heaven when I die. And our hope does entail that, absolutely. But I think Scripture points us to a deeper and a fuller and a grander picture. In fact, we learn right here in Ephesians 1 That God has a grand plan for the universe, and he, he tells us what it is, verses 9 and 10. What's God's agenda? Well, he's making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite or to sum up all things, consummate all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So our hope, while intensely personal, is, is actually more than just personal, just us and Jesus. More than just us finishing on this, in this life and crossing the finish line and being done. That's all true, but it's just a little too narrow, and I think God wants to expand our idea of what hope entails. Our hope actually is, is, is cosmic in scope, One day all things will be consummated in Christ. We just read that in verses 9 and 10. Everything will one day be rightly reconciled to him, Colossians 1. And the entire universe will be put back right. It will be made right again in, in Christ as we're ushered into a new heavens and a new earth. Now that's worth standing on your tiptoes for. The trials of this life, yes, they're, they're real, they're difficult, we know that. Creation groans, we groan, we struggle under sin. But one day, it will be over. And every resistance to God and His purposes will be squashed. The universe will be brought back under order, under Christ. And we will be transformed into His image. My, my point is certainly not to minimize the, the personal dimension of redemption, salvation, not at all, but only to highlight that there is a larger story going on. God's unfolding and his cosmic in scope and King Jesus is at the center. And knowing this and seeing our place in the story will actually intensify and inflame our hope, I believe. It causes us to live differently, just like that little child. All right, second reality. We as God's people should know this, verse 18 again, the riches of God's inheritance in the saints. Paul's words here can be taken in one of two ways. Paul may be referring, he may be referring to the inheritance that awaits us in glory, the new heavens, the new earth when our salvation is consummated. In other words, he he may be speaking of of, of us comprehending the riches of our future inheritance. And I've always taken the verse in that way um, and probably heard it taught that way. In fact, verse 14 seems to be speaking of inheritance in that way. However, notice, uh, notice this, however, in verse 18, Paul wants his readers to know the riches of he says his, meaning God's glorious inheritance in the saints. Paul doesn't say, I want you to know your inheritance or our inheritance. The, the focus is on God's inheritance, his inheritance. So I, I think what Paul's actually shining a spotlight on here is not our future inheritance that awaits us in glory. In other words, something God bestows on us. But instead, his lens is on the inheritance that God himself possesses, or will possess, and that inheritance being the saints, his church, his called out ones, his people. To say it another way, God has claimed us as his possession, and he has given us an unspeakable status as his inheritance that's how Paul's talking here. That's how an astounding truth. And we actually find it elsewhere in Scripture. This is, if you think back, precisely how God speaks of Old Testament Israel when he redeemed them out of Egypt. Exodus 19, after recounting this deliverance on eagles' wings, the Lord says, "Know therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant.'" What does he say? "'You shall be my treasured possession.'" among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. You're going to be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Uh, Peter picks up on this in the New Testament. He says, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And then he says, a people for his, for God's own possession. So taken this way, the the inheritance of verse 18 is, is not something that awaits us, but rather the inheritance is us. It's amazing to even speak or to consider those terms. If we're tracking with Paul correctly here, then then we need to see that God has given us as his people an exalted status far beyond anything we could think, anything we could certainly deserve. The God of the universe calls us his own and he places value on us as his redeemed people bought by the blood of Christ. I will be your God and you will be my people. How many, how many Christians, and I'll put myself front of the line, how many Christians shuffle through day by day never really grasping or appreciating the depth to which God loves and values them? We, we don't grasp I think, we don't grasp and we don't glory in the tremendous value and status God has given us, not because we deserve it, but precisely because we didn't deserve it, and that's the amazing thing, that's the astounding thing, we did not and could never merit God's favor and yet he considers us his treasured possession, or to use Paul's language here, his inheritance in the saints, amazing, amazing grace is what it is. So Christian, do do not doubt the depth and the strength of God's love for you. And if you struggle with believing that, I just encourage you to soak in these verses and elsewhere in Scripture. And, And like Paul, pray, pray that the Spirit would open the eyes of your heart to know it and to live accordingly. So, God wants us to know the hope to which He's called us. He wants us to know... The riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now, thirdly, we need the eyes of our hearts enlightened to know, verse 19, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? In just actually really condensed fashion here, verse 19, Paul really affirms a very central truth. And if we could put it in common words, we'd say this. God is on our side. He's in our corner. And his divine power is at the ready. Directed right here, it says, toward us who believe, toward the saints. And and Paul really wants us to get this, so he just piles on various strength and power words in verse 19. He talks about immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. That's a lot of kind of strength and power language all packed in there, and the astounding thing in Paul's mind is that God actually channels this power toward or on behalf of his people, those who believe. I remember uh, as a kid having these uh, kind of neighborhood verbal sparring contests, you know, where you would... uh, have a group of you, and he'd be kind of fighting it out verbally about who who had the bigger and badder person on his side. You know, my brother can beat up uh, uh, beat you up kind of thing. Oh no, well my my big brother in high school can beat up your brother, right? And then the trump card was always seemed to be something like, yeah, well I've got an uncle in the navy, and he can take all your brothers on. I mean, this was this was important talk back then. Uh, who's in your corner? Who, who, who's on your side? Paul says, God has given to us the immeasurable greatness of his power. Now, how would the Ephesian believers, the ancient Ephesian believers receive Paul's words here? Uh, it, it's well documented that in the city of Ephesus there was a center, that, that I'm sorry, Ephesus itself as a city was a center for pagan religious worship. It was a hub For that, it was a hub for the practice of magic, astrology, etc. The chief Greek deity was the the Greek goddess Artemis. You remember, you you see this kind of playing out in the book of Acts as Paul was in the city. So there's even biblical testimony to that. This was the cultural air that the Ephesian Christians breathed. I mean, they, they couldn't get around it. You walk outside, you walk in the streets, it's just there. You have conversation. Appeasing the gods. Fearing evil spirits. This is how the, the Greco-Romans thought. This was their worldview. as was the environment in which they lived. And I say we could well imagine how significant it, it would be for them, for Paul's hearers, to hear and to know that God, the God of the universe, is for them. And he has ultimate, infinite power. They need not live in fear. I've often wondered in my various travels to India over the last few years, well, the blip of COVID, but yeah, my recent travels to India, I've often wondered how believers there converted from Hinduism might hear the words of verse 19. No doubt very differently they would hear that from Western ears and minds. What a blessing and comfort it is for Christians, ancient, modern, Western, non Western. What a blessing it is to know and rest in the absolute power of God over all other powers. I think we take that for granted. I, I, I do. And that's precisely why Paul's saying we need the Spirit to help, help us get it, to see it, to know that His divine power is directed toward us, His saints, as we live the Christian life, seeking to be faithful to Jesus in a sin-cursed world, battling our own remnant of sin within as we are conformed to the image of Christ day in and day out. We need to know that God's power is on our side. He is for us, and he helps us. Now, Paul could have stopped there. I mean, he's already told us the three things now, hasn't he? At the end of verse 19, he's concluded The hope of God's calling, the riches of God's inheritance, and the saints, the greatness of his power. Period. Chapter 1 could end. But it doesn't. Paul's like just really rolling now, and he has more to say about God's power, and that's how he finishes out the chapter. What kind of power is this divine power? Well, it's the same power that God exercised in raising Christ from the dead and in exalting him at his right hand. In other words, it's resurrection and exaltation kind of power. Verse 20 Uh, speaking of uh, the working out of God's great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So God exerted his power to raise Christ from the dead. And this connection between God's power and Christ's resurrection is made several times in the New Testament. Uh, Probably the clearest is 1 Corinthians 6.14 where it says, and God raised the Lord, Lord Jesus, and will also raise us, by his power. So God did that by his power, raised Christ, and in that we have the promise that one day he will raise us from the dead as well. You know, humankind has, over the millennia, demonstrated tremendous intellectual and creative power. We've accomplished some amazing things. Sending people to space, creating spam, I mean, right, everything in between. Think of what we've done, the good and the bad. In spite of this, no one has the power to raise the dead. That's God's territory. That's what God does. He who has life in himself gives life to the dead. Resurrection power is his, and it's seen most gloriously in Christ's resurrection. And that promise then extends to us. Resurrection power. But it doesn't stop just there. Paul thinks of not only that power, but also exaltation, enthronement kind of power as Jesus was exalted and enthroned at the right hand of God. Again, verse 20. The Lord Jesus Christ is now seated, exalted at the right hand of the Father, the place of honor, the place of authority, and from this exalted position, Jesus now rules and reigns. And this rulership with divine authority is what Paul gets into here now in verse 21, 22. Jesus is seated at the right hand in the heavenly places, verse 21. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. Not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Uh, the, the, those terms there, we, we don't speak this way. Much, but they, they seem to be you know, rule, authority, power, dominion, kind of stock phrases used to describe the spiritual beings, these, these rankings and orders of spiritual beings, specifically the evil spiritual beings. Uh, later, in fact, in the same book of Ephesians chapter 6, you're, you're well familiar with this passage, but chapter 6, verse 12, Paul says that we, as believers, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, notice the language, similar language, against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This is a spiritual battle, it's real, and it's one that we're all engaged in, even though we don't think of it perhaps day by day, but we're all in it. And how crucial it is then for Christians to know that Christ, their king, that Christ is second to none. Imagine if we didn't know that. Jesus reigns over the entire cosmos. Every angelic being, every force of evil is under him. Jesus wins. I love what one author said here, every conceivable power is encompassed within the mighty reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's good. Every conceivable power, you think of it, it doesn't matter. Be as creative as you wanna be. Every conceivable power is encompassed within the mighty reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just to clarify, to say that Jesus reigns over all is not simply to say that all other powers are inferior to him. It's to say that all powers are subject to him. And that's why in verse 22, uh, Paul speaks of all things being put under Christ's feet. The, the image here, right, is of, the, of a mighty king defeating his enemy and placing his foot on the, the neck of the defeated foe. It's the metaphor, the image there. Now, we don't see that in fully realized yet. I mean, sin is still around. Creation still groans. We don't, we don't see that victory yet. But it's been purchased. The victory's already won. And Christ's present enthronement at the right hand of the Father, his reign at God's right hand is proof proof positive that the the victory is won. And again, that would be welcome news if you're a believer in ancient Ephesus. Just as it's welcome news as believers here in modern-day Minnesota. Paul goes on to make this actually even more personal here for for Christians. <clears throat> Christ is not only King over the universe, He's also head of the church's body. Verse 22. It, he gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Uh, Paul's word is Paul's words here are challenging. Um, different ideas, some debate about what exactly he's saying here. But I think this much is clear. Jesus is head of his church. He is the head, we are his body. And a primary way that the enthroned Christ is exercising his rule in the universe is through his church, his body. And so as Christ builds his church, so his glory extends, and Paul's language here, his fullness extends Increasingly so throughout this world. Because it's King Jesus who's on the throne and he's the one building it, the one who has all power and authority, we know that nothing will stop it. Nothing will stop Jesus as he builds his church. No force of hell and certainly no earthly power. Everything that we've talked about briefly this morning in this passage. Everything is as real as the nose on our faces. Everything. Spiritual riches, glory, inheritance, divine power, spiritual powers, Christ's reign from heaven. We know it's true. And Scripture tells us. It's real. But, but I also know that these are kind of abstract concepts, aren't they? I mean, it still is a little elusive trying to get our heads around it, and they're not concepts that we easily grasp. It's, it's sort of like staring at that two-dimensional image. And some days, it pops out in 3D, and you get it. And other days, it's just not happening. Let me encourage you with a few things. First, as Paul has indicated in, in this very text, these, these truths are comprehended and, and absorbed only by the work of the Holy Spirit in our, in our minds. Uh, most learning and growth, we know, takes place as a process, not an instant, and so as the Spirit works in us, just know that it's a process of growing and learning. So if you can move forward even an inch this morning, maybe two inches, in your grasp and appreciation of these ideas of what God has done for us, then, then praise God for that, and we pray that the Spirit would add to that and teach you and shape you day by day as you sit under His Word. Secondly, if if you struggle particularly with purpose in life and meaning and identity, I hope that you will continue to meditate on these verses. I, it's really hard to find a more powerful description of the Christian's position, status. It's more. It's. It's. it's you're not going to find a more detailed, powerful, power-packed description. Of your position your status than right here in these verses and what of you if you long for purpose in your life if you if you just you know you're driven to like tie into some great cause then look no further God is moving human history to a goal to sum up all things under the Lordship of Jesus Christ and if you belong to Christ then you're part of that story and you're given a role in that great story there's no need to go looking elsewhere. There's no need to ground your purpose, your ultimate identity in lesser things. And who knows what they fill in the blank, retirement account, relationships, intelligence, strength, whatever it is, those are lesser things and they fit under the lordship of Christ. So that's your status, that's your purpose. Thirdly, remember to think corporately, not merely individually. What I mean here, and if you said it earlier, but salvation is not simply about Jesus and me. It is that, but it's more. We have been brought into a new humanity, Jew and Gentile together, and Christ, the head of his body, the church. And the church is God's possession, his inheritance. And through the church, God continues to manifest his power and his wisdom in this world don't do it now, but you can look in chapter 3 to see Paul explain that even more. What we do here on the Lord's Day as we gather corporately as Eden Baptist Church, the body of Christ, this is no small insignificant thing. It's not. In the Old Testament book, 2 Kings 6, um, The king of Assyria is trying to hunt down the prophet Elisha, God's man. And Elisha, uh, because Elisha was feeding um, the other king military intel, God was giving him some revelation and spoiling the king of Assyria's plans. So the Syrians finally track down Elisha in the town of Dothan. And in the cover of night, they surround the city with a large number of troops. Well, morning comes and the young servant of Elisha wakes up goes outside the tent, and he sees this ominous gathering of a Syrian army. It doesn't look good for the prophet. It doesn't look good for the servant. It's very threatening. He's seen with a certain set of eyes. But it's in that moment that Elisha tells his servant, 2 Kings 6, he says, Don't be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. The text goes on. It says Elijah prayed and said, "Oh Lord, please open his eyes that he may see." And so the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. You see that the, the young servant was he was seen with a certain set of eyes, two dimensionally. But like a like the stereogram that we spoke of, he needed to see with a different set of eyes. He needed God's perspective. He needed God to open his eyes. And when God did that for him, what he actually saw was reality. He saw reality in the spiritual realm. An overwhelming display of God's presence and the immeasurable greatness of God's power seen in the form of a mountainside full of horses and chariots. I think in a similar way, we need to pray, O Lord, open my eyes that I may see. Help me to comprehend the hope of your calling and the riches of your inheritance in the saints and your immeasurably great power at work toward me. Let's pray. God, we do acknowledge that these truths are far beyond us. They really are. And yet, you've revealed them to us and you've told us we need to know them but you've not left us to ourselves to do it. So may your spirit now open our eyes and inch us along to a greater and deeper understanding of all that you've done for us in Christ and the great redemption that we have and all that you're doing in this universe to sum up all things under Christ. One day we will see that. It will be realized and we rejoice in that. Lord, may that hope Cause us to tilt forward evermore, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.